Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at newyorkcomiccon.com slash nycc hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be returning to one of our favorite mind-blowing topics here on the show, and that's going to be the problems inherent in our experience of consciousness. Yeah, this is a great one because there's no danger of us really explaining it and figuring out consciousness anytime soon. And there have been so many different approaches to it, right? From the neuroscientific to the psychological to the philosophic, everyone trying to understand this question, who am I? What am I? What is this thing I'm experiencing? One of the most persistent and fascinating questions in the study of mind and biology is the question of the function of consciousness, not just what is it, but what does it do? I mean, you know that you have an internal subjective experience, that you're aware of your awareness, that you can turn your mind's eye to work over content in this deep place in your brain. And by analogy, you believe everybody else has this ability as well. They seem to have it. But biologically speaking, why does anybody have it? Now, you might think it's just a necessary part of being an animal with a brain, right? Like, I've got stuff to do. I've got to eat, got to go get the groceries, got to seek shelter, got to check the coin returns in all these candy machines. So my brain needs to be able to think about doing that stuff in order to do it, right? Yeah. But hold up for a second. I wonder if you've ever had this experience. Robert, tell me if you have. You ever have that experience where you're driving a car... And you arrive at your destination and you suddenly realize in sort of like the transition between activities when you get there that you were not conscious of the act of driving. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You you go on a sort of autopilot. Yeah. I've had that happen with generally with routine tasks. Uh, It might be driving. It might be emptying a dishwasher, loading a dishwasher, that sort of thing. Yeah. uh, You know, taking uh, uh, dealing with laundry. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so when in the example with driving, this is often known as highway hypnosis. Maybe you were lost in your thoughts while on the road and you just managed to drive from one place to another without consciously thinking about driving at all. And yet you did it. Driving is this highly complicated mental task. It involves massive integration of sense information and coordination of different parts of the body. You've got to time everything just right. And yet your brain has the power to make your body do it without you thinking about it at all. And unlike uh, dealing with laundry or unloading the dishwasher, if you do it wrong, people die. So right. It's, it's, uh, it, it's I think it's one of the, the reasons we tend to highlight it is because you think about the fact, oh, I, I don't really remember driving to work. I just kind of did it. And it's such a dangerous uh, uh, thing for us to engage in and seemingly turn our brain off to. Yeah, it can be a terrifying experience for multiple reasons. I mean, one is the danger, but the other is just 
how alien it feels to realize that your body is capable of doing complex behavior without your knowledge, essentially, mm-hmm. without you really being aware the entire time. So now the next step I want to take you on is very simple. Just imagine everything you do is like this. Cooking, cleaning, working, talking, fighting, parenting. Imagine your brain is just as capable of doing everything it does, but simply without reflecting upon those actions within the mental theater of your consciousness. So it's highway hypnosis for your entire life. It's total behavior hypnosis. Is it possible for you to imagine this? It's difficult to imagine this sort of thing, uh, for sure, because because in this scenario, being conscious of your drive, like that would be the abnormality. You're talking about, um, you know, an abnormal state of consciousness or a, or even a lack of consciousness really would be the normal. That would be the predominant human experience. Exactly. And now that you're considering that possibility, we ask again, if that's possible, what does consciousness do and where does it come from and why? You know, I think we often turn to various metaphors to partially explain our thought processes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How often, I mean, how often do we fall back on computer program, movie, right. or, or written fiction as a loose means of understanding it all? But one of the, you know, the real damnable things about trying to understand consciousness is that, like, we're stuck within it. It's yeah. like, it's like uh, trying to uh, understand that the earth is not flat, right? Like we have all of these various means of of you know of of testing it, uh, of of uh, looking at the data and knowing for a fact that the world is not like a, just a flat plane. Right. And we can even send a satellite or even a human being up into orbit to look back down on the Earth and see it for us. Right. But with consciousness, it's not that easy. Uh, d- you know, despite whatever different tools you might be using, neuroscientific, psychological, philosophical, to step outside of our consciousness and understand what it actually is. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems is you can't really be conscious of the fact that you do things unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Like you can't feel what that's like in the moment because as soon as you pay attention to it to feel it, you're conscious again. Yeah, and it wouldn't be the same thing, really, perhaps you'll agree or disagree, as not remembering doing something. Right. You could have been conscious of doing something and then had amnesia and forgotten about it. Yeah. Or, you know, you hear people about uh, hear about people who um, consume too much alcohol and exp- have a blackout experience. Yeah. Or uh, accounts of people who uh, who use Ambien to sleep and uh, and they do something that they do not remember. Right. And, you know, various other psychological factors that can create that experience. Like but this order 30 frying pans on Amazon. You don't right. Lie. Right. Uh, but for, for the, for what we're talking about here, this is a case where, yes, you remember driving to work, but you weren't really there for it. Yeah. 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 You know, it happened, but it, it just, your mind was not present. Right. Likewise, it's not like, uh, undergoing anesthesia and just being out for the course of a surgery. In thinking about all this, you know, I often come back to, um, a quote from the author R. Scott Baker, who uh, was recently on our show, and he, he he said this about consciousness. The magic can only vanish as soon as the coin trick is explained. In this case, we are the magic. So uh, I, I often think about that when trying to unravel consciousness. Like we are, we are within consciousness. We are creatures of consciousness. And then to try and take it apart is to take apart ourselves. Well, I know Scott has some anxieties about the – well, I don't want to put words in his mouth. But I think he has some anxieties about uh, you know the consequences of explaining consciousness too mm-hmm. much. Like if you do explain it, does that create a sort of crisis of, of meaning, of existence? Yeah, the uh, semantic apocalypse. Yeah. So – 
This leads us in to what we're going to be talking about for the next two episodes of the show. This is going to be the first part of a two-part series uh, where we're going to be discussing a fascinating hypothesis in the history of psychology known as bicameralism. Now, specifically, we're going to be looking at the work of the American psychologist Julian Jaynes in his 1976 book, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. The two episodes that we're going to do, we're going to break down roughly like this. In the first episode, we're going to just try to explain what Julian Jaynes' theory of the bicameral mind and of modern consciousness is and how he gets there from the problem of consciousness. And then in the second episode, we want to discuss his argument, like his evidence for the theory of the bicameral mind, how he sees evidence of this in history, and maybe some reactions to the idea since the bicameral mind. And we should be super clear here at the beginning that this was and still is a controversial hypothesis. Uh, for the purposes of discussion today, we're going to be entertaining it as a hypothetical, but you should not take this to be a, an endorsement of the hypothesis as fact. It's not widely believed to be correct in full, though it has had many supporters. And even if it's not correct in full, which is probably not, it might be correct in part. Yeah, indeed. There are going to be a lot of uh, points in this episode where we're discussing the theory of the bicameral mind as if it is uh, something that we are totally convinced of. Yeah. And this book I just mentioned, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, I would compare it to the work of, for example, James Fraser, hmm. because I think it's one of those books that's worth reading, even if it's almost completely wrong, because it's just such a fascinating synthesis of so many disciplines. Today and the next episode, we're going to be diving through history, archaeology, ancient literature, philosophy, psychiatry, neuroscience, and just direct phenomenological experience. I read that Dawkins uh, criticized – well, what Dawkins said of the book is that it's either – Richard Dawkins. Yeah, either said that it's uh, brilliant or it's rubbish and that there's no in-between. <laughs> Uh, I, I I disagree with that. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I think that it's very possible that it is both brilliant and wrong. Yeah. If nothing else, I think it serves as a, a fascinating thought experiment. Yeah. What if this is true? What if this were true? Uh, and how does it force us to reinterpret the, the past and the legacy of our species? Yeah. So even though I suspect its conclusions are probably wrong, or at least wrong in part, this is one of the most interesting books I've ever read in my life. So strap in. I think we should start just by giving a straight version of Jane's conclusion and then work our way back to it. Does that make sense to you, Robert? Oh, yeah, that's pretty much what he does in the book. Yeah. Um, here's this amazing uh, uh, theory of what uh, consciousness consists of and what it used to consist of or not mm -hmm. consist of. And then he works backwards from there. Right. And so here's the, the most basic summary I can give of his conclusion. Until roughly 3,000 years ago, Human beings were not conscious. Around that time, modern human consciousness began as a cultural invention, probably in Mesopotamia, that spread across the world over time. And before that time, for thousands of years, almost all humans were not conscious in the way we are, but instead were commanded in all novel behaviors by hallucinated voices that they called gods. And I just want to drive home uh, the impact of this. The argument is that ancient peoples did not 
think like we think. The God-run human, uh, as uh, he refers to him at one point, uh, experienced something that for us would feel like an altered state of consciousness or a spiritual event, uh, as if uh, we were hypnotized by a voice like that of a God, and it just told us what to do. And then catastrophe forces us to learn consciousness, and in doing so, we ceased hearing the voices of the gods as we once did. Yeah, so just to be clear about this, what is being proposed is in this period, which he calls the period before consciousness is the period of the bicameral human being. Mm -hmm. In the bicameral mind, there was no consciousness. There was just action commanded by hallucinated voices from another part of the brain that was believed to be a god. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get in, into the idea of schizophrenia as it relates to all of this in the second episode. But uh, uh, James does say that, like, straight up, this was a time when everybody was essentially schizophrenic. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is it runs counter to a lot of what we do when we read ancient literature and and flip through ancient history is that I here's I would describe my experience this way. Maybe okay. maybe you'll tell me whether you think it's the same for you. When I read a work of ancient poetry uh, or I read about, you know, very, very ancient, like the ancient Egypt or ancient mm-hmm. Mesopotamia, stuff that goes way, way back from before the Roman Empire, say. I feel like on the face of it, I encounter humans who are completely alien to me. I feel like I can't identify with them and I don't understand the way they're being described. And what usually happens is I say, okay, well, this is just a problem of translation. Like I'm not getting some things about the the cultural ways that their lives are communicated through this literature and recorded. Um, So I just need to find ways of seeing the analogies between people like us and people like them and say, okay, here they were really more like us. And here's why things are being misunderstood. But another way, do you kind of have that same experience? Um, yeah, well, it depends. I mean, definitely, I would say the oldest civilization that we continually discuss here is probably, uh, you know, ancient Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've touched on the fact that like the, the religion of ancient Egypt did not, did not travel well beyond its borders and that it's, they were, they were a really alien people to try and understand. So yeah, I definitely feel that when I'm, whenever we're researching the ancient Egyptians, uh, and to a certain extent, I felt that when we were talking about, uh, uh, the, uh, you know, ancient, ancient Mesopotamia as it relates to, uh, the Tower of Babel. Oh, yeah. But um, but there's uh, I feel like there's often also this issue that I guess is best summed up by uh, the various medieval pieces of art where, you uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, the stuff by Bruegel, the elder, where you have some sort of mythic thing going on, like the Tower of, of Babel. But then you also have scenes of everyday life. And so I think, well, if I'm encountering something that doesn't feel very human and looking at an ancient culture, then perhaps that's because this is just like the the skeleton of experience. This is just the heroes, the gods, the myths, and very little is recorded of, of daily struggles and daily life. Yeah, but what if the issue is not so much that the ways they're similar to us is being lost in translation – but it's that we're reading it basically correct at face value and they just weren't like us. Yeah, I feel like it's it's kind of a challenging perspective to try and wrestle with because 
I want to humanize figures of the past, mm-hmm. especially, you know, people in other cultures. Right. It and feels wrong to say, look at, at, uh, at, you know, ancient, uh, Egyptians, uh, individuals and, in, uh, you know, in, in ancient, uh, uh, civilizations of Asia or Africa and, and think of them as alien, to think of them as having a different thought process than, than we have. Right. I mean, one way I think that we're resistant to that is that there's a sort of implied, like, denigration in that saying, like, oh, if they were very different from us, they weren't as good as us. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't want to think that way, but we, it might just be the case that, their internal mental life was very different than the internal mental life of people on Earth today. Yeah. And before we dive in any deeper, I do want to point out that, yes, the bicameral mind is referenced in HBO's Westworld. Uh, and, I, and I really love Westworld. I think it's a wonderful show. However, I think you'll find that the the idea of the bicameral mind and the ramifications of uh, bicameralism are far more complex, rewarding and terrifying uh, than anything that's uh, explored in that show. I totally agree. I remember that it came up, but I don't remember there being much about it in the show. Well, Robert, I think maybe we should start where Jane's starts in his book, uh, which is with the problem of consciousness. And he's got a, he's got an introduction to his book that just gives a brief history of all the solutions that people have tried to offer to the problem of consciousness over the years, which even if you don't, if you're not interested in his bicameral theory, this is a cool intro to read because it's such a well-written and concise summary of the history of people trying to deal with uh, with what consciousness is and where it came from up until the mid 1970s, and he's got a quote where he describes the the you know the question at the root of the problem of consciousness that is so good I had to read it. So consciousness is quote a secret theater of speechless monologue and prevenient counsel, an invisible mansion of all moods, musings, and mysteries, an infinite resort of disappointments and discoveries. A whole kingdom where each of us reigns reclusively alone, questioning what we will, commanding what we can. A hidden hermitage where we may study out the troubled book of what we have done and yet may do. An introcosm that is more myself than anything I can find in a mirror. This consciousness that is myself of selves, that is everything and yet nothing at all. What is it and where did it come from and why? I should also say that uh, that description, an uh, infinite resort of disappointments and discoveries, a perfect review for Disney World. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what are the discoveries? The discoveries of disappointments? Or? No, no, the discoveries are un- are discoveries. It's full of just wonders and uh, disappointments. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I loved it. But, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's it's hard to contemplate. The discovery of what other people throw in the trash. <laughs> Maybe. Isn't that one of the most interesting things about going to an amusement park is looking in a trash can and seeing what people throw away? Maybe this is just me. Um, I, maybe this is just you, Joe. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't remember the trash cans of Disney World some, uh, that much. Uh, but maybe that's just because it was, you know, stimulation overload. No, it's great when you like, you see a pair of glasses in there or something and it's like, huh, huh. Hmm. Anyway, uh, back to the problem of consciousness. So in other words, it, it's not, hard to understand where human beings came from. Biology and evolution seem totally sufficient to explain the existence of bipedal primates eating and reproducing and making tools. But the question is not why are those creatures here? It's why are we here, these entities of reflection and awareness that seem to inhabit the bodies of these bipedal primates? 
So one can easily imagine, as we talked about earlier in the introduction, bipedal primates that do all the same stuff we do, but are automata. There's no inner awareness or capacity for deliberative thought or reflection. So if if we're evolved beings, at what point in our evolution did consciousness appear? And so he, he offers a few thoughts of this. One of them is the idea that consciousness is a property of matter, right? So the relationship of consciousness uh, to what we are conscious of is not fundamentally different from the relationship between objects interacting physically by contact or by gravity. It's only different in complexity. Uh, of course, Jane's is not persuaded by this view. And I, I would just say if consciousness is an inherent property of matter, like a can of baked beans is in some way conscious, why do we completely lose consciousness under general anesthesia? Hmm. Like if you've ever been put under for surgery, you know what it's like. There's no consciousness whatsoever. It's just a black hole in your in your oh, experience. Yeah, yeah, the lights just go out. But so, yeah, there's no reflection, no internal experience, no memory, no choice, no dreams. Your mind just ceases until you wake up. But while you're under anesthesia, you still have the same mass you did. So if, if it's something about matter that would see, I don't see why changing the chemical, uh, you know, chemicals flowing through your brain would cause you to completely lose consciousness. It's just that some part of the brain has been chemically deactivated. This signals to me that consciousness has something to do with something happening in the brain. Yeah, I, and I think distinctions like this tend to make a lot of sense to modern humans, uh, in large part because we have that handy metaphor of hardware and software. Right. You know? So it's really easy for us to think of uh, of consciousness arising as essentially like software arising from the hardware um of the uh, of the brain. Yeah, it's not there in the hardware. Mm-hmm. It has to it has to be run by the hardware. Right. Okay, so uh, so maybe it's not there in all living matter. Uh but maybe Jane says what if it's a property of all living things like amoebas have some form of consciousness. It's just when life arises that's when you start having consciousness. Apparently Darwin was fond of this idea. He 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 sort of saw rudimentary consciousness in all living things. Uh, but according to Jane's, and I think I'd probably have to agree with them, there is just not any evidence that simple organisms possess consciousness. Uh, our tendency to project consciousness onto them is just some fallacy of sympathy. Like we see behavior and sympathizing with the consciousness uh, behind similar types of behaviors in human beings. We assume consciousness is behind those similar behaviors in all creatures, in amoebas, uh, because, you know, a human being fleeing a needle would be conscious you imagine an amoeba fleeing a needle would be conscious, but there's just no evidence that that's true. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that as humans, we we anthropomorphize like mad gods. We're wired to see faces, but we're also wired to detect minds. Totally. Even when there's nothing there. Right. Okay, so maybe here's another theory. Jane says, what if consciousness is learning? He says uh, a lot of people were persuaded this by this view for many years. And uh, here's a quote. If an animal could modify its behavior on the basis of its experience, it must be having an experience. It must be conscious. Thus, if one wished to study the evolution of consciousness, one simply studied the evolution of learning. And in fact, Jaynes himself, along with many other psychologists, worked under this assumption for many years of psychological research before rejecting it. Uh, For example, he tells stories about how he did experiments to see if a mimosa plant 
could be trained through conditioning. And he, in the end, determined that the mimosa plant was not conscious. <laughs> uh, he, he, he found that species with synaptic nervous systems like fish, flatworms, earthworms, and so forth could learn. And originally he took this as evidence that they possessed some form of consciousness. But later research has shown this to be just obviously wrong. You don't need consciousness for learning because we can show in human beings that there's a tremendous amount of totally unconscious learning, unconscious conditioning. Yeah, plus we need only think to the uh, the slime mold for an example of learning taking place in the absence of a brain. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I feel like we've, we've moved beyond that. Okay, the next one is just consciousness is a metaphys- metaphysical imposition. It's It's magic. You know, <laughs> and OK, well, if if you think it's magic, enjoy. But uh, that's that's not really something that's very productive to proceed with from a scientific point of view. It's hard to do experiments to see if consciousness is magic. So uh, so it, it, you b- believe that if you want, but that's not really going to give you a program of experimentation to work with. Yeah, I, I think we can only engage in dualism so far from a scientific standpoint because the mind that stands apart from body must still be rooted in our universe. Right. Uh, yeah, so we can't really do much with magic. Here's another one. We've talked about this one on the show before. Here's the helpless spectator theory. Consciousness does nothing, and in fact, it can do nothing. So the idea is that at some point in evolution, sufficiently complex brains begin to create this sense of awareness of deliberate thought. Uh, and the relationship between this sensation of experience and the actions in your body is a complete illusion. Your consciousness does not, in fact, control your body. Your body acts and your consciousness watches you act. It's a helpless passenger. You're essentially watching a movie of your own mind, suffering from the delusion that you're participating in the movie. This is also known sometimes as epiphenomenalism, that consciousness is just a, an epiphenomenal uh, uh, byproduct of mental processes. Yeah, Thomas Huxley uh, uh, was fond of this, and he would compare um, uh, a conscious mind and the physical brain to a genie in a lamp. Yeah, uh, but so a lot of people have found this not very productive. I mean, one would one question would be, well, but still, what is it? <laughs> Another <laughs> thing would be the American psychologist William James, uh, the guy who wrote the Varieties of Religious Experience. He argued against this view. Uh, as paraphrased by Jane's quote, if consciousness is the mere impotent shadow of action, why is it more intense when action is most hesitant? And why are we least conscious when doing something most habitual? I think that's a reasonable question. Okay. Yeah. So Jane's ends up saying that he thinks any viable theory of consciousness should at least try to explain a relationship between consciousness and behavior. Okay. We're getting close to the end of this timeline. How about consciousness as an emergent property? Um, we've talked about this idea before, too, right? So hydrogen is not wet. Mm-hmm. Oxygen is not wet. But you combine them into H2O and you can create the property of wetness with enough of these atoms. So in that sense, consciousness would be a property of certain arrangements of matter uh, that is more than the sum of its parts. It's sort of a feature emerging from interactions. Like from a sufficiently uh, complex biological system. Exactly. So this may be true. And for Jaynes, I think he correctly reacts to this by saying, well, that it's not that that's false. It's just that that doesn't answer the question. Consciousness may, in fact, be emergent. But so what if it is still? What is it and what does it do? Then we get into the middle of the 20th century with a really, really <laughs> distressing viewpoint. 
consciousness doesn't exist. Ooh. This is often identified with the, the behaviorist school of psychology, like B.F. Skinner, very strong in mid-century psychology. Uh, Jane's says, quote, it is an interesting exercise to sit down and try to be conscious of what it means to say that consciousness does not exist. Yeah, you know, some would call that uh, kind of mental exercise meditation. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I believe it's uh, um, Eckhart Tolle who uh, frequently advises one to think the following. I wonder what my next thought is going to be Ooh. in order to clear the mind. And uh, what I, a I, paralyzing thought. Well, no, I wouldn't say paralyzing is liberating. You know, you yeah. can just sort of sit there. And if you start, if you ask yourself, I wonder what my next thought is going to be, what's my next thought going to be? And then you kind of or at least I kind of feel things uh, feel like the, the weight of uh, the default mode network, the weight of consciousness kind of lifting for a second. Hmm. It's kind of like standing on one leg to relieve the weight on the other. Yeah, that's appealing. So Jane's has a fairly substantial discussion about the influence of behaviorism. And so the behaviorist school of psychology had a research program that, uh, just to summarize, it tried to focus exclusively on externally measurable behaviors. And it posited that these behaviors could be explained by the interplay of mere instinctual reactions and stimuli. Uh, or not just instinctual ones, I mean, conditioned reactions. It was big on conditioning. And it was not really interested in inner experience. And Jane says that in the beginning, what behaviorists were really saying was consciousness is not important. And this sort of transformed into the doctrine that consciousness does not exist. And Jane's actually believes that by focusing on these externally measurable actions, behaviorism was very useful. It sort of got psychology out of that squishy realm of philosophy that you think about with like Freud and Jung and made it a more respectable experimental science. Uh, but Jane says, quote, but having once been part of its major school, I confess that it was really not what it seemed off the printed page. Behaviorism was only a refusal to talk about consciousness. Nobody really believed he was not conscious. So the way I interpret that is that behaviorism was, in fact, a method, not a theory. And it did a lot of good for psychology. But now that psychology has sort of like had had its room cleaned up by this process of going through a behaviorist phase, you can return to introspective experience, the internality. What is consciousness? What does it do? Where did it come from? Now, one last thing he deals with, and I think this is a very good point to make, is he uh, focuses on neuroscience. So the, you may have read studies or uh, not studies, maybe news reports that say like, hey, scientists have identified the X as the source of consciousness in the brain. Maybe it was the reticular activating system or maybe it was the claustrum mm -hmm. or something else in the brain. There's some region of the brain that some neuroscientists now think they've identified as the place where consciousness happens or is made possible. You, They may be right. It may be that you can isolate some sort of on-off switch for consciousness in the brain. But yet again, I would say this doesn't answer the fundamental question. You've just basically narrowed down the physical space of the tissue that generates it. You still have the question of what is it, where did it come from, and what does it do? Yeah, if I drill a hole through um, like a hard drive, Am I necessarily drilling a hole through like the seat of like the, the center of computation or am I just disrupting the, the integrated system that makes it possible? Yeah, yeah. You could identify some part of a computer mm -hmm. that so was you say, well, without this part of the computer, it couldn't compute. Yeah, I mean, I can I can steal uh, like the battery off of somebody's laptop. Right. But that really doesn't necessarily answer this like deeper question of like what is the nature of computing and why does it occur? Mm hmm. 
much easier to answer in the nature uh, in the discussion of the nature of a computer. Yeah. And I have to say, we, we went into this a little bit in uh, the episode, Where is My Mind? Yeah, yeah. So that's a good one to refer back to if anyone wants uh, uh, more on this topic. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will dive right back into consciousness. All right, we're back. All right, we've been discussing in, in trying to work our way up to Julian Jane's theory of the origins of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. We're starting with his discussion of what consciousness is. Um, so another thing that he points out in his book is that there's an important distinction to be made between consciousness and reactivity. So this is something interesting to think about. You know, we talked about the the high, the highway hypnosis state where you can drive without really being conscious of it. Mm-hmm. It's a fact that people in somnambulistic states, meaning sleepwalking, mm-hmm. can react without being conscious. Like you put an obstacle in their path and they might go around it or they can they can react to their environment and yet not be conscious the entire time. The people don't know what they're doing. And so we react unconsciously to all kinds of things. Uh, for example, unconscious learning through conditioning. And reactivity can also be explained through neurology and behavior, but consciousness not so easily. I've got another thing to ask you. You listener right now, where are you? Now, before I asked you that question, I think it's very likely that you were not conscious of where you were. And that's not the same thing as saying you didn't know where you were. Like, if somebody asks you, you can turn your attention to the answer to that question and immediately provide the answer. But you were not thinking about where you were. The fact of your physical location was not present in in the theater of your mind at that moment unless it just happened to be by chance. Yeah, like a, kind of a, a more extreme example of this would be if I am reading a really exciting book in my living room. Am I really in my living room or am I on that, uh, you know, that that epic battlefield that I'm reading about? Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, one of the interesting things about engaging with fiction and like watching a movie mm-hmm. or reading a book is that you enter this kind of unconscious flow state or what, what you're unconscious about is your own physical life and your surroundings and that you're engaged deeply with the ongoing narrative such that you forget yourself and where you are. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, another example would be if someone is plagued by a traumatic memory. Yeah. You know, you you're aware of your actual physical surroundings, though your mind is continually going back to this one place or time and experience. So with those really simple experiments, you can demonstrate that consciousness is actually a much narrower part of your mental experience than your entire mental life, right? Not everything you do with your brain is conscious. In fact, most of what you do with your brain is not conscious. Consciousness, Jane's uses this one uh, image that I think is very effective. It's sort of like a flashlight shining around in a dark room. Mm -hmm. The whole room is there. But you can use your and you can use the flashlight to shine on any individual object. And then once you shine it there and you, and you try to imagine, OK, what, what is going on in my brain that's not conscious? So you move the flashlight around to look at things that you're not conscious of. You immediately become conscious of them when you shine the light on them. Yeah, this gets into ideas, too, that we've discussed about consciousness as being potentially being just like basically an aspect of of awareness. Yeah. Which is not the, exactly the same as James is going to propose mm-hmm. for the definition of consciousness, but we're, we're getting there. So 
James gives this list of things saying what consciousness is not. Okay. So he says it's not mental activity. We've demonstrated that tons of mental activity is unconsciousness, is unconscious. Uh, it's not recording information because uh, a whole lot of memory is clearly established unconsciously. Think about the ways that uh, there are things that you could not physically draw a picture of because you don't remember what they look like, but you would notice if something was wrong with them. Yeah. So think about like if you came home from your house today and somebody had moved the pictures around on the wall, you might not be able to consciously recall where all the pictures are if you tried to draw a picture of it right now. But you might notice something was off if they'd been moved. Huh. You know, it kind of reminds me how some, you know, some books you read, there is a very detailed description of a particular character. Mm-hmm. Other times there's not. And I, I know when I was younger, I used to engage in an exercise where I would basically pick a movie star yeah. and, and slot them in as that character. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I don't I haven't done that really in years. Occasionally, like there'll be an actor or some, you know, a particular face that kind of becomes that character in my mind. Always Jeff Goldblum. Just <laughs> universes full of Goldblums. It's not a bad choice. But um, but I find a lot of times if, if the author is not giving a, a very detailed description, I kind of have a loose idea of what that character looks like. And I don't think about it much. But if you were to present me with an artist's sketch of that character, I could instantly tell you if I liked it or not or if it, you know, it, whether uh, it matched my... Uh, uh, my vision of what that character would be, even though my vision yeah. of that character is rather abstract. Like in your mental theater, it's like they're wearing the scramble masks from a scanner darkly. Yeah. You know, they, they look like many things at once. It's kind of a blur. But you can identify a particular that you think does not fit that character as soon as you see it. Right. Okay. So it's not recording of information. He says it's not the basis for forming concepts. I think he's right about this because uh how about the concept of a tree? Mm-hmm. Now, he, he talks about the idea that no one has ever seen a tree. In fact, you've only seen this tree or that tree. But he sort of disagrees with it because he says, you know, animals have to have categories of things that they react to in a certain way. So it would kind of be hard to imagine the life of a squirrel if a squirrel did not have something like the concept of a tree. It's got to be able to scramble into a tree that it's never scrambled into before by recognizing it as a thing that can be scrambled into, which is a tree. Yeah, and it's difficult, I think, for us to think about that kind of thing because it's very difficult for us to think about it outside of language. Yeah. So Jane says it, that consciousness is not, in fact, the basis of learning. And we we know this to be true through experimentation. Now, signal learning happens automatically. Now, that's just like, you know, conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning. You see a signal and you expect something to happen according to association with it. Uh, skill learning also seems to happen when we're least conscious. Think about training. You ever trained for like some kind of athletic feat or trained on a musical instrument? You probably know from experience that you can't focus too much on your actions. You have to sort of let go and not overthink it. Mm-hmm. How about solution learning? Uh, he, he talked about how even, even the solutions to, uh, like working toward a goal or a problem, the solutions are things we arrive at unconsciously. So he describes this experiment where uh, students were, were performing an experiment on their professor where every time the professor moved to the right side of the room, the students, instead of being bored, paid rapt attention and they laughed really hard when he would make a joke. And so by, you know, the end of a week, he's basically so far to the right of the room that he's going out the door huh. and he was not aware that they had been training him this way. Interesting. 
He says consciousness is also not the process of thinking, thinking like making judgments. So here's a, a quick test. Hold two objects in each hand or one, sorry, one object in each hand. Which one is heavier? All right. So you think about that and you make a judgment, but you're not conscious of how the judgment arises. Your brain just sort of presents the answer to you, right? One feels heavier and your brain tells you that's the one that's heavier, but you, you don't, you, like you've done some kind of unconscious arithmetic and you're not aware of the process by which the answer was generated. Yeah. It's kind of difficult to show your work. On yeah. That. Exactly. It's sort of like saying, uh, why is two greater than one? Or like I give you two numbers, you know, six and four, which one is larger? You can't explain a conscious process of deciding which one was larger. Well, I mean, I intrinsically know that, that six is greater than one. Yeah. And I, and those are small enough numbers too that I can, I can visualize the, the quantity. Yeah. I can imagine six eggs and four eggs. Right. So I can engage in that kind of like basic visual, uh, uh, you know, judgment. But you didn't have to do that, did you? You just had the answer immediately. Yeah, I guess it does become tricky like that because you, because because uh, I'm doing it all in in, uh, in reverse. I'm looking right. back on my decision making, looking back on my judgment, and and trying to figure out how it took place in the mind. Yeah, you're trying to consciously reverse engineer your unconscious thought process. Hmm. Uh, so here's another one he he mentions. Let's go with a pattern. Tell me if you can uh, say what comes next. A, B, A, B, A, question mark. B. Right. Everyone can get the answer. It's totally simple. But notice how you're not consciously aware of how the answer is generated. You can consciously reflect on the answer once you have it, but it's not generated by consciousness. It's just there. Yeah, this is actually a standard part of um, of, uh, of testing for kindergartners, by the way. My, my son just went through uh, this, and I got to see, like, the questions he was asking. And one of them uh, involves a couple of different rounds of this to see if they what kind of pattern recognition they have. Yeah. Uh, so here's a crazy thing. He says that consciousness is not even the process of reasoning. Hmm. How would that be the case? Surely we think reason has something to do with consciousness, and it may have something to do with consciousness, like – for example, reasoning may require conscious laying of the groundwork of sort of the reasoning space. But it is curious to pay attention to stories of scientists coming up with answers to like complex mathematical problems or physics problems. They very, very often report that the solutions come to them out of the blue when they're doing unrelated activities. Like there's a story about how Einstein had to be careful when he was shaving because suddenly solutions to problems in physics would leap into his mind and surprise him when he hadn't been thinking about them. And he had to be careful not to cut his own throat with his razor when this happened. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all relate to uh, situations where you, uh, you know, you go out on a walk or you engage in some of their activity. And, yeah, that's when the, the thoughts begin to come. Yeah. It's like it's it's in the bath mm -hmm. that you have your eureka moment. Yeah. So having excluded all that stuff in deciding what consciousness is, it's time to to get to the bones here. Jane says, or would this be the meat? Would it be the bones? Would it be the fat to chew on? Mm, well, let's go with let's go with the meat. The meat. Okay, maybe this is the meat. So Jane says, uh, again, I'll just hit you with it, and then we can try to explain it. Consciousness is a metaphor-based model of the world, and it arises from language. Without language, according to Jane's, you could not have consciousness. 
Uh, and it comes from the way we use language to create metaphors and how those metaphors themselves lead to new ways of thinking. So how does this work? Well, let's explore real quick. So metaphor is actually, when you think about it, one of the most fascinating things about language. It's a thing that without language we cannot do, right? Mm -hmm. Language makes metaphors possible. And it's the use of a term for one thing to describe another because of some kind of similarity between them or between their relations to other things. That sounds kind of complex, but you use metaphors in your life. You basically know what they are, right? So uh, he introduces two terms for the two halves of a metaphor. You've got the metafriend, which is a new thing, a thing to be described that you don't already know about. And then you've got the metafire, and that's the known thing, the thing in relation used to describe the new thing. So here's an example. Let's say there's a new species of beetle. It's got a large horn protuberance branching off of its head. That's the metafriend, something new. You've got the metafire, something you're familiar with, a stag and its antlers. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor is a stag beetle. Okay. But I'm guessing this also applies to say, like, the metaphran could be a feeling that I have. Exactly. And then the, the metaphere is, uh, say, a tiger. I've seen a tiger, but this, this emotion that I'm feeling is new to me, but I can use the tiger as a way to describe what I'm feeling. Exactly. Now, that is, is one of his key insights. We use metaphors based on the natural physical world around us. To understand the metaphrans of inscrutable internal consciousness. So you have mental activity that is uh, turned into a metaphor through comparison to some concrete action in the world. And this process gives rise to conscious thought. So here's a version of that. How about uh, you're, you're trying to solve a problem and you've, you've got going on in your mind what we just described, like you uh, the A, B, A, B, A, B problem. What comes next? If you think A comes next... You don't understand what happened in your brain to to give you that answer. So that might be the metaphrand, the the thing that needs to be described, the unfamiliar thing. It's the inscrutable process of coming to comprehend the solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. And you've got a metaphire, something that's totally familiar to compare it to. Seeing with your eyes, something that happens in the physical world. Right. The metaphor is the conscious thought is now I see the answer. Mm-hmm. So consciousness for Jane's is something that is taking place in a metaphorical mind space that is an analog of physical space in reality. It's when we invent this metaphor of a world inside to match the world outside, and we use metaphors from the physical world to understand and describe our own mental activity. And through these metaphors, we generate this self-reflective process, this spatialized stuff in the head, the mind space where we create narratives, we reflect on our behaviors and generate the circumstances that produce consciousness. And for Jane's, this is how consciousness arises. I think uh, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I do think this is one of the most fascinating propositions for the origin of consciousness I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I agree with you. It's. I'm, I'm hesitant to, you know, endorse it 100 percent because I, I really, uh, for one thing, I really do like the uh, the awareness uh, explanation. But, uh, but, but, yeah, when I start thinking about about the the power of metaphors, it it does uh, 
it does have a bit of uh, it does feel true. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the way metaphors do pervade our thinking about things. It's one of the funny things about language is that language makes metaphors possible. But almost all language is built out of metaphors. Mm -hmm. Even the word metaphor is a metaphor. Like the word metaphor comes from the Greek meaning to carry across. Mm -hmm. So you've got this abstract action of taking the meanings of one word and putting them on another word. But then it is described in terms of a physical concrete action in the world that we're familiar with, carrying one thing to another place. Yeah. So even if you think you're being very literal, uh, you know, you're still um, you're still walking on metaphors. Yeah. I mean, pretty much the only language that is not based on metaphors is that of the physical concrete world and basic activities in mm-hmm. space. So uh, so Jane's gets to what are the most important features of consciousness? So like what what is consciousness, according to him? He says one of the main features is spatialization. And this means that conscious thoughts metaphorically seem to take place in a, quote, mind space, which is not a physical space. And within the mind space of consciousness, things that do not in reality have a spatial quality become what he calls spatialized, that is, imagined with spatial qualities. So, for example, time. In direct experience, we apprehend time as this continuous, impermanent succession of moments, right? It's hard to describe how you experience time without using a conscious metaphor that turns it into space. Yeah. Like, can you, how, how can you even describe what time is without changing it into space in your consciousness? Yeah. I mean, you, you end up having to come up with some sort of a physical description. Like, for instance, uh, Kurt Vonnegut in the Slaughterhouse Five had the description of, for, for a linear experience of time, uh, of a man on a train with blinders on looking at mountains roll by and he can't turn his head. Yeah, exactly. So it much like that in our unconscious direct experience, each moment is sort of lived in and then disappears. But in our conscious mind space, we can organize temporal events into a timeline, something that does not exist in any detectable way in reality. There is no such thing as a timeline in the world. It's only a mental uh, construct. So consciousness makes the past and the future comprehensible and organizable to us. Suddenly, when you have consciousness, the past and the future, in some sense, exist. Yeah, and this is a this is cool because it, this ties into some past discussions we've had about uh, you know the difference between you know linear linear existence and um, and um, and modern humans and the more cyclical uh, existence of, of the past. Yeah, totally. Uh, another feature he isolates of of being uh, unique to consciousness, he calls it exertion. So this is when you isolate a detail for attention, using it to represent the whole. So I'm going to ask you, Robert, what did you do the summer after ninth grade? I have no idea. I have no idea whatsoever. No. Uh, I, I'd have to really think about it. I guess I probably... Summer hypnosis, just total, totally yeah, blank. I don't know. I mean... If you if you asked the question about an earlier year, I could have said, oh, I went to scout camp, you know, or I went to this camp or, or another. But for ninth grade, I'm not sure what I did. Well, OK, so I want to say for most memories, time period memories, I would ask like that. You probably have at least one image rise to the top from the time I ask you about. And that is the excerpt that represents the summer. Mm-hmm. And then from that one excerpted memory, it might be an image. It might be a specific episode you recall. From that one excerpt, you can associate around to others that have something to do with it, rather in this imagined physical spatialized timeline or by, you know, sort of theme associations. And this is a process that we know as reminiscing, right? 
So think about how a human like us without consciousness could recall information about the past. It's impossible to imagine that person reminiscing. Does that make sense? Like a person without consciousness might be able to use information from their past to make a decision about the future. But and so they'd have memory and the memory could be recalled. But there would be no process of wandering through the mind space of memory of the memory theater, looking at one excerpt of the past after another. Right. Huh. Well, that it's crazy to try to imagine that because it would mean that you could not look longingly back on something in the past. You exactly. Couldn't, you couldn't experience nostalgia. You couldn't. Uh, I mean, one would wonder even if you could uh, be traumatized. I mean, maybe you could because you could certainly have uh, positive and negative associations yes, with events uh, mm-hmm. and you, you could have things you wanted mm-hmm. that would be associated with past stimuli. But you, you couldn't you couldn't wander through your memory because what would you wander with? So a bicameral human who had been uh, you know experienced a horrific burn, they might they might have a, a, a strong reaction to seeing fire. Yeah. But they wouldn't just be, say, sitting there eating their, uh, you know, the, their grass and their berries and then just think out of the blue, ooh, fire uh, is terrifying and I'm afraid of it. No, I think they probably wouldn't. Yeah, they, they would not have memories of that event. They, hmm. The memory would be ac- accessible and useful to their brain and behavior, huh. but they wouldn't go back to the memory and experience it with their attention. So in a sense, kind of liberating because you, you wouldn't be sitting around constantly fretting about the, the past in the future. Right. Okay. So I asked just the question, if you didn't have consciousness, what would you wander through your memory with? The thing you wander through your memory with is the next feature Jane's identifies, the analog eye. Mm. So for Jane's, an analog is something that at every point is generated by the thing it's an analog of. A good example would be a map. A map is an analog of a part of the surface of the earth. So the analog eye that Jane's talks about is the mental analog of your body in reality, and it moves mentally through mind space to observe and perform metaphorical, quote, action within the mind space. If, if that's thick, just think about it's the mental version of you that does the looking. So when you wander through your memory, it's your analog eye that does the wandering. It's the mental representation of yourself as a subject. Yeah, worth noting that in his book, he uh, he does stress that the analog eye came into being toward the end of the second millennium BCE. Yeah, and that's about the time mm-hmm. that he's saying that the bicameral mind largely began to transition into the conscious mind. After the analog eye, he's also got a, a feature of consciousness is the metaphor me. Hmm. This is the metaphorical object version of yourself that you observe. So when you say when you say I see myself doing X in a memory. Mm-hmm. The I in that sentence, the subject is the analog I, the, the, the analog version of you that looks. And the me version of yourself in that sentence is the metaphor me, the subject version, or sorry, the object version of yourself that gets looked at. That's crazy because it's, uh, it, it forces you to try to imagine what if you only had I or you only had me. Yeah. And how would that affect your, uh, your, your, your conscious uh, experience of the world? Well, it seems to, at least in his theory, the bicameral human has neither one and the mm-hmm. conscious human has both. Yeah. So, yeah, what if you're some kind of transitionary human where you, you, you can't imagine yourself but you can wander through mental space? Yeah, or kind of like things only happen to me but I don't do things. Uh, mm. Yeah. 
I don't know. I wonder if that's possible. Anyway, uh, two more features of consciousness he identifies. So he says consciousness enables narratization. So an unconscious being could not form thoughts into coherent stories. You make a narrative that makes sense. Uh, so the non-conscious brain would react to events of the present, perhaps based on things learned from experiences in the past. But the conscious mind weaves past, present, and future into a story. And this story also includes dependencies of cause and effect. In a story, things didn't just happen. They happened for a reason. So this is the part of the conscious mind that, beca- that makes us concerned with the question, why? A final feature of uh, consciousness is what he calls conciliation or later in his afterward, he calls consilience. And this is fusing excerpted mental contents together to make it spatially compatible in a way that makes sense. So if I, uh, Robert, I'm going to ask you to imagine a couple things, a plate okay. and mm-hmm. a bunch of spaghetti. Done. Okay. Now you're probably imagining the spaghetti on top of the plate, right? Yes. Not the other way around. Yeah. There was no hesitation there. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't tell you to do that. That's consilience in your mind. You're organizing things in your mind into a way that makes sense. Yeah, I would never put the plate on the spaghetti. At most, I would imagine the spaghetti in a pile here and the plate over here. But my mind didn't go there either. Yeah. So here we finally worked our way up to Jane's idea of what consciousness is. He says it's, quote, an operation rather than a thing, a repository or a function. It operates by way of analogy, by way of constructing an analog space with an analog eye that can observe that space and move metaphorically in it. Or the even shorter version, he says consciousness is, quote, an analog eye narratizing, so creating stories in a mind space, which I think is a very elegant way of of reckoning with what consciousness is. I, I'm not sure that he's correct about the generative mechanism that like language creates consciousness, though I do think it's possible that he's correct about that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure he's right about that, but I do think the way he describes the phenomena of it is very credible. Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to uh, transition from uh, James's views on what we have now mm-hmm. and get into this concept of the bicameral mind, what came before. All right, we're back. All right, so it's time to explore the bicameral mind as proposed by Julian Jaynes. Yeah. So you, we, we talked at the beginning about how you can have this experience of highway hypnosis. Your body can perform complex behaviors with you really just not being aware that it's happening. Your brain's working all the stuff. It's pulling the levers. It's using your vision and your hearing, and it's making your body move, but you're just not there for it. Mm-hmm. You can do all that stuff almost perfectly unconscious of the process of driving, if it's highway hypnosis or whatever else, acting purely out of habit and instinct, when suddenly there's a mime in the middle of the street pretending to be stuck in a glass box. Well, that's going to that's going to shake you out of it right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what do you do about this? Obviously, if you are a conscious human like us, you snap out of it. Mm-hmm. Your highway hypnosis goes away. You suddenly become very conscious of yourself. You become conscious of your driving. You start narratizing your imagined self, performing possible reactions to the situation, right? You're working through what should I do? And you compare these imagined hypotheticals to decide what's going to happen. And this is one way we often find ourselves, quote, using consciousness when we have to suddenly deal with novel stimuli, a thing Mm -hmm. you didn't expect that isn't part of your habit process. 
gets thrown in front of you and now you've got a, a, a novelty problem. It's an outside context problem yeah. and you've got to deal with it. Yeah, mime in the street. You have, nothing has prepared you for this. How are you going to roll with this change? Right. So in, in Jane's vision of consciousness, this is what consciousness mainly does. We employ our consciousness in volition and decision making when we're encountering something that we were not used to. But so that's for us. That's conscious people. What if you were not capable of consciousness? What if you were entirely a creature of habit behaviors like like, you know, you're, you're like you are when you're driving the car out of habit and you just can't turn to the internal narratization? What do you do? Well, Jane says the hypothetical bicameral person of antiquity in this example I've given, um, instead of being conscious when faced with the mime in the street, instead of becoming conscious of the novel stimuli, would instead unconsciously hear a voice telling them what to do about it, and they would obey. Avoid the mime. <laughs> yeah, it would say it would be as if a parent said, like, go around it. Mm -hmm. And you hear the voice of maybe your mom or your dad mm -hmm. or some authority figure, your boss or your chieftain. Yeah, your king. Yeah. Suddenly would tell you, okay, just drive to the left and go around it and then proceed as normal. Mm -hmm. And then you would obey. So in the next episode, we're going to go into the into great depth about the evidence that Jane's presents for the bicameral mind in history. So we're going to look at literature and archaeology and all this stuff about what what he thinks makes the case for the existence of the bicameral mind. But first, I think we should just look at a couple of objections you might have to how could this be possible? How could humans be like this? Yeah. And I mean, of course, in all of this, we have to state the obvious that it is just it is difficult to try and imagine a default uh, human mindset yeah. that is like this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So here's one objection. Can people really hear hallucinatory voices that are indistinguishable from real voices? Uh, the answer to yes. this is undoubtedly yes, just absolutely. If you doubt this, go read about auditory hallucinations. Auditory hallucinations are, number one, they're very common. Uh, even lots of people who don't normally hallucinate at some point in their life will have an auditory hallucination, often in a period of intense stress. Mm-hmm. And auditory hallucinations are often perceived as absolutely real, not necessarily fuzzy or dreamlike, though they can be like that, too. But in many cases, they are perceived as as lucid and clear and real as the voices of people around them. Here's another question. You might be like, well, wait a minute. Can hallucinatory voices really provide helpful information? Like, don't they just if you're imagining the experience of a person with schizophrenia who is caused a lot of suffering by their condition? That certainly does happen. People can mm -hmm. be, you know, uh, told very nasty, negative, unpleasant things by voices in their head. But there are cases where these voices do seem to provide comfort and helpful information and to guide and to guide behaviors in a in a useful way. It just depends on the case. Well, and plus, not every example James makes about uh, the bicameral mind is a case where the voice or the voice of the gods is 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 telling the individual to do something that's beneficial. Right. Uh, right. I mean, just the same way that conscious humans can make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. Your a bicameral human could have part of their brain tell them to do something that is a bad decision. Yeah. It's just part of the human brain that sometimes it makes bad decisions, whether it's existing in a bicameral state or a conscious state. 
But so anyway, yeah, th- these voices, it's not necessarily that they're omnipotent or godlike in their knowledge, but rather when they are helpful, they tend to command information and insight on about the level of a human brain. This is not really surprising because they are from a human brain. So then, okay, so if you're with us so far, you might be thinking, okay, well, what actually causes hallucinations? Where do they come from if you're hearing voices? Uh, it depends on many factors. Different people have vastly different levels of susceptibility to hallucinations. Some people are very prone to them, experience them all the time. Other people are not prone to them, but at some point in their life will experience one. And in almost all cases, Jane says the trigger for hallucinations is stress. In hallucination-prone people, it takes very little stress to trigger one. In less-prone people, it takes a lot of stress. Uh, Jane says, quote, During the eras of the bicameral mind, we may suppose that the stress threshold for hallucinations was much, much lower than either normal people or schizophrenics today. The only stress necessary was that which occurs when a change in behavior is necessary because of some novelty in a situation. This is what we were talking about with the mime in the road. Mm -hmm. You've suddenly hit something that your habits do not account for, and you need to make a decision based on volition. So, resuming the quote, Anything that could not be dealt with on the basis of habit, any conflict between work and fatigue, between attack and flight, any choice between whom to obey or what to do, anything that required any decision at all was sufficient to cause an auditory hallucination. You know, to get back to, to Westworld uh, just a little bit, you know, I, I mentioned that they uh, that they use the bicameral mind in that series. And the idea is that at, a, at an earlier point, the robots essentially had a bicameral mind where uh, mm-hmm. the creators would, were speaking in their head. It does remind me of a lot of the modern science of drones where you have a, quote, man in the loop scenario um, where you could have a, you, you have a machine that's going about its business and when necessary, a, a human adjusts the behavior of the machine. Yes, yes, totally. Or I think about, uh, like the hybrid, uh, machine human chess players. Have you read about this? No, I haven't. Uh, well, I don't know if it's still the case. For a while, so you had the point where suddenly the best chess programs could outperform the best human players. But then there was a period, and we may still be in that period, where in fact, better than the best chess programs are players that are chess programs assisted by human players. Hmm. Okay. So it's almost like, you know, the chess program, it it basically knows what to do all the time, but maybe to introduce some novelty, the human player steps in and does something clever. Huh. All right. Well, what about uh, neurological evidence for this hypothesis? Right. So this is one where I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail on Jane's hypothesis, because for one thing, a lot of it, uh, we don't want to get too bogged down here. And in the next episode, we're going to primarily talk about evidence for or that James presents for the theory. Um, but his neurological hypothesis may also just in some cases be proven wrong by later experiments. And uh, we'll talk about that some more in the second episode. But here's the gist. There is generally a sense in which the two hemispheres of the brain, the right hemisphere and the left hem- hemisphere, are genuinely divided and can in some senses act independently, almost as if they were two separate persons. Now, I think we've talked about some of the evidence for this before in episodes in the past, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and we certainly have uh, talked about it when we've discussed uh, unihemispheric sleep yeah. and what it would be like if, uh, if a human experienced unihemispheric sleep. 
There's a character in an Ian M. Banks culture uh, novel that has that scenario going on. And they've essentially got two different personalities. When Three each... different personalities. Oh, wow. Because if one side's active, they're they're one way. If the other side is active, they're another way. And then the uh, if both sides are active, you know, the standard human experience, you have a mix of both. Now, it, it's interesting that uh, Jane's points out that on the left hemisphere in most people, this is going to be the dominant hemisphere and, you know, right handed people. Generally, this will be the le- left hemisphere of the brain, though it can alternate for other people. Um, uh, the left hemisphere is where speech generally happens. Mm-hmm. But Jane's turns his attention to the analog speech areas of the right brain in most people. So un- under Jane's schema in the bicameral mind. The non-dominant hemisphere, which is the right hemisphere in most people, generates auditory hallucinated voices perceived by the dominant hemisphere or the left hemisphere in most people. And his explicit neurological hypothesis is, quote, the speech of the gods was directly organized in what corresponds to Wernicke's area on the right hemisphere and spoken or heard over the anterior commissures to or by the auditory areas of the left temporal lobe. And these uh, commands are then obeyed more or less automatically as an obedient child obeys the commands of a parent or a member of a social animal species submits to the authority of another individual higher up the dominance hierarchy. And he goes into great detail about about verbal dominance, like the... Uh, the research on like how people obey commands and how you can control people's minds by getting right up in their space and giving them verbal commands. Ah, man, you know, in in uh, reading about all of this, I kept thinking back to uh, to yoga class. I love going to I love doing yoga on my own, where I'm essentially calling the shots and following a pattern. But I also love going to a class where there is a uh, there there is a leader, there is a teacher who is telling us how to move our bodies yeah. uh, for an, for an hour and fifteen minutes, an hour and a half, and there's something very liberating in that. Yeah. Uh, so, in other words, uh, in Jane's hypothesis about the neurology of this, the the non dominant hemisphere does the integration of information in the difficult thinking about how to deal with stressful situations brought about by novel stimuli. And then that right hemisphere or the non-dominant hemisphere tells the dominant hemisphere what to do. And the dominant hemisphere incorporates that information and enacts it. So uh, he offers five main pieces of evidence for his neurological hypothesis. I just want to present his summary of them very, uh, very quickly. And some of these we'll get into more detail in part two. Yes. Uh, So he says the pieces of evidence are that, quote, one, uh, both hemispheres are able to understand language while normally only the left can speak. That's kind of interesting. Mm hmm. Two, that there is some vestigial functioning in the right Wernicke's area in a way similar to the voices of God. So he identifies that with like activity in the right hemisphere in most people, the non-dominant hemisphere in this uh, speech associated area being associated in, say, uh, people with schizophrenia, hearing voices, auditory hallucinations. For example, if they're somewhat severed or or one is turned off, Mm -hmm. essentially, the other can behave as a person independently with some adaptation. Um, For the the contemporary differences between the hemispheres in cognitive functions at least echo such differences of function between man and God as seen in the literature of bicameral man. So he's comparing he's saying that there are some analogies between the functions of the left brain and right right brain to man and God, as we will see in some ancient literature. 
And finally, he, he appeals to the sort of plasticity of the brain, that the environment shapes the way the brain functions to an incredible extent. A lot of what the brain does is not determined by your genes, but is determined by how you grow up and your social environment. All right. So those are the basics. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so we've established that in the next episode, we're going to explore what Jane's presents as the evidence for the existence of the bicameral mind and the transition from the bicameral mind to the conscious mind. But I want to end just by comparing the ideas, the bicameral mind versus the conscious mind. I think one of the hardest things to recognize and keep in mind here is that we have such a pro-consciousness bias. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we, we just tend to say, like, well, consciousness is obviously what what, you know, the good life is all about. But Jane's I don't think is ever explicitly saying that one kind of mind is better than another or even that one kind of mind is smarter than the other because they do just seem to offer different adaptive capabilities. Right. Yeah. I mean, and as we'll explore, I mean, there's a strong case that when the bicameral mind goes away, I mean, that it's it has tremendous catastrophic consequences yeah. for these uh, these early cultures. Right. So if there's any truth to his theory, it may be the case that, for example, people of the bicameral mind have strengths like they work better in groups they on average have greater mental endurance mm-hmm. you know they can do things more and so they're sort of like tougher in keeping at tasks yeah and they have more creativity more fluid linguistic creativity they may have been better poets they may have been uh, just as we've been discussing they may have been happier if, if, if but in a way that is not like our happiness right and then on the other hand of course people with conscious minds he's saying are probably on average more adaptable better able to deal with n- new stimuli when it comes up yeah when uh, the so, mime appears in the street uh you know, I, I won't stop and surrender to it. Right. Uh, but but the takeaway, if there's any truth to Jane's theory, I just want to stress is not bicameral mind equals old, stupid and bad. Right. And conscious mind equals new, smart and good. They're they're subjectively different models of experiencing the world with different strengths and weaknesses. However, the the, the message is still that ancient people were strange. Ancient yeah. people to us. We're alien yeah. to us. Yeah. yeah. So in the next episode, we're going to run through uh, historical, religious, and even modern uh, cultural evidence that he says supports this theory. So if, if you thought there was, wasn't enough bloodshed in this episode, hang on, because uh, empires will fall, uh, gods uh, and goddesses will rage, uh, the, whole, the whole nine yards, the whole clash of the titans will take place uh, in the second episode. And in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership, and that's where you can find all the episodes of the show. you also find videos and blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr. And, hey, on Facebook, we have a discussion group called the Stuff to Blow Your Mind Discussion Module. That's a great place for you to interact with other fans and with us uh, in, in more of a long-form format. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, the old-fashioned way, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.